0: Welcome to my podcast, In The Know, my series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of tell. This time on In The Know, an incredible entrepreneurial leader, CEO of Snowflake, and former CEO of legendary startup Data Domain, as well as ServiceNow, Frank Sloatman. We're going to talk enterprise, sales motion, and the transition to the cloud. Spoiler alert, we haven't even started. Today on In The Know, I've got Frank Slootman. Am I saying it right?
1: You're, uh, well, you're saying it the American way. The Dutch way is actually Slotman, like, like for English, yeah, in English, double O is O uh, in, the, in the Dutch language. I spent the first five years I was in this country trying to get the world to pronounce it the Dutch way, and uh, I finally gave up on that because people said, well, this is the way we pronounce double O, and, shoulders to it, so. Oh, so you go
0: on TV and you say Frank Slootman?
1: Yep. Quite some adjustment. uh, All my Dutch family and Dutch friends go like, that's not how you say it. Well, (laughs) it is over here.
0: Well, it's a privilege to have you on In The Know. I have been interviewing all kinds of legendary business and historical and academic figures on the topic of how to make something big and how to make something spread. This time, I've got my colleague Trevor Clark from Notel and um, he and I are admirers of a bunch of the businesses that you've run and built. And, build, and I'm, I'm so appreciative you were able to make time and, and help us learn from your story. I'm happy to do it. Absolutely, Frank. It's a pleasure. It's a uh, a minor irony that some of the companies that you've run or are on the boards of are customers of Notel. Medallia, oh, And ServiceNow, actually, ServiceNow is turning into one of our biggest customers. We run offices around the world. And um, I think we just did our third deal. I, I think we have a few in Germany and, and in Europe. And they're moving more and more to a totally on-demand, kind of flexible platform thing, which I guess you know well from the service that Snowflake provides.
1: Yeah. Yeah. no, And we uh, I don't know whether we have done business with Notel, but we certainly have, you know, consumed space from uh, from WeWork and the likes who, you know, run a similar, you know, type of on-demand play, right? It's just, just charges by a number of people and month to month and, there are, uh, you know, scenarios where that makes quite a bit of sense. I mean, real estate is really hard for companies that are growing incredibly fast. It's, it's brutally difficult. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, our business relationship actually is that we are a customer of Snowflake, and uh, when I go I over budgets
1: and, I, and when I <laughs> ask
0: why on earth are we spending so much money on Snowflake? Do we really need this thing?
1: The CTO says, "Yes, absolutely." Yeah, I'm happy to to have you speak to our real estate people as well. There's absolutely no reason why we would not consider you as much as as anybody else. For yeah, uh, you know, we we sometimes create you know office spaces in big cities like London and San Francisco where we don't want to sign huge leases, but we need a crash pad for salespeople. And that's really ideal, you know, where we sort of don't exactly know and for how many people, how long, or we just want to keep our options open. That level of flexibility, obviously, it's a much it's a lot more expensive, but it has a role to play in the overall. uh Set of options that you have in the real estate portfolio. Well, your
0: comments are far too kind, not what I would expect from a Dutchman, often very hard edged and direct. So clearly, you've adopted your American residence as your cultural style. <laughs> and my goals actually in our conversation here are not to have you pay a lot of compliments to us. I, I want to explore your story and how you got to where you're at now. And and maybe since we did just start with Snowflake, you could just give me a little feeling, since some listeners may not be technical enough, that they're inside a CTO organization that has come to rely on Snowflake product. Um, what do you guys do?
1: Well, Snowflake is a uh, cloud data platform. And, um, you know, what that means is, is essentially, you know, it's a database platform that is entirely cloud hosted. And uh, why does that matter? It has broken... Boundaries, both in terms of scale, you know, we really most scale of data volumes from terabytes to petabytes. And, uh, we have the ability to bring unlimited amounts of computational power, you know, to that data. So in the realm of analytical processing, which sort of all digital enterprises or, or even semi-digital enterprises, you know, data is the way that we parse the world now, right? And it's how we make decisions, how we direct our operations. So Snowflake has become uh, the, the next generation platform for uh, analytical data processing. You know, we're in eight of the Fortune uh, 10, so it's incredibly fast adoption. The, the company has grown uh, 3x for every single year since it's been selling since 2015. What's so interesting about it is that uh, when you go from an on-premise computing environment to a cloud one, you know, that organizations need to change from managing fixed capacity, which is all about utilization and efficiency, to managing variable capacity because, you know, you can turn on capacity unlimited, right, on demand, and uh, that's a completely different mentality, orientation, and uh, and skill set. It's, uh, it's highly transformative. People get a little drunk on the possibilities and uh, potential, so that, that's sort of the side of the equation that we're on now. It's very Ready fun, switch? very
0: exciting. When you switch from fixed to flexible capacity, because it's funny, we were just touching on that. You're talking about your teams in different cities. Are your customers paying you more per unit
1: of capacity? Well, we're uh, charging by the machine second. So, if, you know, for example, you know, if you say, hey, you know, I'm I'm running a query, call them workloads. You know, I want to double the size of my cluster, the number of nodes on that cluster. You can literally do that second while the workload is actually running. Now, obviously, you have twice as number of nodes executing. Yes, you're going to have more machine seconds, and that's reflected in your build. But obviously, the job is also going to complete much, much faster, right? And there's an optimal sort of capacity there that goes sometimes faster is cheaper, because faster means you're consuming less machine seconds, right? It's kind of intuitive.
0: So for the time slice you buy, you may be buying a unit cost that's high, but you're buying less time. And probably saving money overall.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a software company, I mean, we're really following the, uh, the utility model of the large cloud companies through the AWS, Azure, and Google, of course. Because that is how people now are consuming infrastructure. So you're layering the software on top of that. Consuming it with the same business model makes a lot of sense. And our cost is is obviously what we have to pay Amazon. Microsoft and uh, and Google, and then you know we uplift that with our own proprietary value add. For customers, great because they can turn on insane amounts of capacity for a very short period of time, and then it's gone. And when they're not processing, they're not paying anything other than for the cost of storage, which is also at rock bottom, uh, highly compressed prices. So it's it's extremely equitable for customers. I mean, I've been in software a long time. This is the most equitable business model that we've had. I really think that SaaS software as a service, the subscription model is really a transient model. I think he, I think it won't be long before all software gets consumed and, and charged for in this manner.
0: In utilization.
1: Yeah, utilization you pay for what you use. Whereas in the world of SaaS,
2: it's not you don't pay for what you use, you pay for what you license, whether you use it or not. I've lived through that. I mean, you know, having touched probably four or five of companies, but never quite at the scale of Frank's Ventures, but the customer value gap where you clearly had, you know, your top 20% of customers who are your reference customers are clearly seeing the full value of the product. But like the bottom 20%, uh, the churn risks and the customers that you worry about from a revenue uh, retention and expansion perspective, it really comes down to the what did they buy versus what do they use conundrum. And yeah, it's, it's been <laughs> interesting that pricing models are now finally evolving and getting there. So.
1: Yeah, we're we're more similar to a true utility company, or or even to uh, you know to a Twilio, or uh, you know you're buying minutes for your cell phone. You you buy the minutes, but when you use them, it's kind of up to you whether you use them at all. And that's the way it is in our world. You know, you buy credits, and uh, you use them as you see fit. You know, some customers consume much faster than what they're projecting, some are slower. Everybody has a different ramp. What's really interesting about this model is that. We recognize revenue on consumption only. So, in other words, hmm. uh, you know we're not a public company, but if we were, if we report revenue, that is actual consumption for that period of time. So it's extremely transparent to investors as well. That's something that absolutely has not existed in the world of SaaS. It's interesting that and you refer you know, to
0: being a layer on the stack above an Amazon or a Microsoft who's behind you. I actually yeah, I was we fully don't expecting uh, we you don't, to run big data
1: centers. Yeah, we don't really uh view it that way. I mean, we, we view ourselves as the data cloud, and we view the Amazons of the world as infrastructure clouds. You know, obviously there's data in the infrastructure cloud, but actually that data is really governed by the likes of Snowflake. And because we run across all these infrastructure platforms, we are a true data cloud because the data is replicated and shared across regions and across cloud types. So the notion of a data cloud is a new one, because the only type of clouds we've had are application clouds, like the likes Salesforce service, Workday, et cetera. And then we've had infrastructure clouds. There haven't been any pure play data clouds until Snowflake. So that's really our mission to make that happen. And there are a lot of reasons to have a real data cloud. You know, one of them is obviously uh, we need to unsilo the data, which is really the biggest legacy that we have from the prior database generation. I mean, data is completely siloed, which is a nightmare. We can't share data. We can't integrate data. We can't augment data. We can't monetize data. We can't mobilize data. And obviously, mobilization of data is, is a huge priority for, for just about everybody out there. And then there's data governance, right? In other words, the security and privacy side and how to manage that, you have to have a data platform to be able to do that. There is no way in hell that's ever going to happen when the data is siloed and everybody is just uh, the Wild West where everybody is getting data from everywhere. And then the resulting sets are put in different places. And the organizations have no prayer of exerting any form of governance uh, on their data. And they have to because they're going to get fined from here on out for everything that goes wrong.
0: It's a compelling product pitch. You know, yeah. the thing I want to yeah. investigate a little bit with you, because clearly the product works. I mean, Scott, the growth rate you mentioned is phenomenal and it's got to be a thing that customers want. But you just got there a year ago.
1: Yep, a little bit less than a year. I'm still uh, I'm in month 11 here.
0: I can see why you would pick a business like this to join, given your career. Why did a business like this come looking for you?
1: You know, company was doing really well. It was growing very, very fast. And the board decided to make a leadership change. I wasn't part of that decision, obviously. and I mean, they, they figured that out on their own. And I knew the people there, talked to me casually, literally for years. And, you know, I was retired. Completely retired. You know, I was just sort of lending a sympathetic ear, but I had zero intent uh, to do anything. Sometimes, you know, things just have a really bizarre way of uh, just catching fire. Uh, all of a sudden, things just happen, and I think my wife is still trying to figure out what they all happened because none of this was <laughs> part of the plan. But um, it's people like us. We have a very difficult time staying off the field. We can stay up the field for a period of time because, you know, we do get burned out because it is such an intense, high-pressure uh, thing to do this kind of work. We get really enamored, you know, by compelling products. That is the bottom line. I mean, we, this is what we live for, products like this. I've been part of software products throughout my career that were huge struggles for all kinds of reasons. And it's hard and, and frustrating and all this kind of stuff. So when you become part of a really, really compelling product, that in of itself is very hard to resist. This is what we live for in the world of software.
0: Yeah, it's a special it's a special thing. I mean, in startups, and for me, I've started lots of companies. I've very rarely been part of getting them from pretty good to huge. Often others have helped our companies do that. And as Notel's getting big, I'm learning. I, I feel like maybe... You know, I've learned a few things and I'm going to be part of this journey for some distance forward for you coming in. You had done it. And, you know, some of the eye catching companies that I know well, or at least I quite admire, like ServiceNow and Medallia, where it seems like you were super active until you retired. I mean, you're running ServiceNow and I want to explore a little bit some of the analogies between Snowflake and ServiceNow and maybe even Medallia.
1: I was a board member at Medallia. The company that I ran before Service now is a company called Data Domain, which was an incredibly good experience, much more analogous to Snowflake because it was a storage platform. We invented high-speed deduplication of data, which led to the complete demise of the tape automation industry. And Data Domain was acquired by EMC and then, of course, Dell acquired EMC. That is still a multi-billion. That was still the single largest product line that they have over there. Extremely profitable. Uh, because it's, we call it software on the stick, right? It's almost all software and then the hardware kind of gets thrown in there. That has become a multi-billion dollar business to this day. And that's, Yeah, legendary that's, company. Like
0: that. 2000s yeah, it, decade, it
1: is, right? It does. And, uh, that was a pure startup. I mean, I joined that. There were 15 people there, no products, no revenue, nothing, right? So in other words, that one we, we did from the ground up. So very different from ServiceNow where I came in and, you know, they were already whatever it was, $75 million run rate. And, you know, there was some mass to that thing. It had momentum and certainly Snowflake was of the same sort. It had gone, it had crossed the chasm successfully and so had ServiceNow. That was not true for Data Domain. That that company had nothing uh, when we joined. So totally different challenges.
0: Yeah. And I want to explore this. So I had Jeffrey Moore, Mr. Crossing the Chasm on In the Know a little while back, and it was awesome to interrogate this pre and post chasm and who's the buyer and how do you present the product and the whole product and 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 all this stuff with him and in these three cases yes the stages were different but first i want to start with the product itself that you were selling and who the customer was and how you felt about that sales motion and how you might contrast them because you know things do evolve the way that people sell big contracts now to companies for technology products has has evolved but also just what the product is matters a lot doesn't it
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, God, every time I'm involved, you know, with companies in, in one flavor or another, you know, the the product needs to be incredibly compelling. I, I usually talk about lightning in a bottle, right? If people, if you're explaining what you're doing and people don't start to lean in and come across the table... I mean, you need to have a very, very high bar, right? If This is really a sluck of pushing a rock up the hill. Forget it, right? Because by the time you hire sales, you know, person number five, you know, the founders can usually sell a product because, you know, they're very, very smart. They're very, very intelligent. They have passion. They'll make a few sales, right? And then you see a lot of that happening in the chasm where, you know, we, we get a handful of customers, but we can't scale because the average person can't sell it. There's just too low a bar that's been applied to this product. So a product needs to be absolute lightning. That's the standard that you need to apply. And if you don't get that, you're just not ready to scale. You're not. And don't start to hire up a whole... That's another thing they do in Silicon Valley. You know, they have half a product and they start hiring 20 salespeople. It's crazy. If you can't make one person productive, why in the hell would you hire two? Or three or four. It's a process of cell division. First, I convert one to uh, to productivity. Then two. Then I'll try four. But you must convince yourself that you have connected with the bullseye, and you see a path to to really connecting all the way. You know, with the opportunity, you start to understand what you have to do in terms of roadmap. You know, to fully assert the opportunity that you have connected with. But most products never connect with an opportunity. I mean, Jeffrey Moore will tell you. You know, most products die in the chasm. They just do. You know.
0: Yeah, give me like illustrate a little bit uh, what it was like when when you're in front of a customer with data domain versus with ServiceNow, and and how it is yeah. with Snow.
1: I'll tell you when I was first with data domain. I mean, we had a three U uh, appliance, and uh, kid you not, it had a whole single one terabyte of usable space on it. This kind of this is 2003 now. Okay, it feels like a, like like eons ago, yeah. and it was moving data at a rate of 30 megabytes second. Right. If you go into a customer, is like, what the hell can I do, you know, with one terabyte usable space that moves at 30 megabytes a second? So it was too small to do anything useful. And I remember, uh, what the hell are we going to do? Are we just going to go, you know, pull our horns back in, you know, get the product bigger, faster, and then we're going to go back out? which would take probably a year, year and a half because we were really, you know, writing the multi-coring strategy of Intel. And that, that was very successful, by the way, but it took time because we were literally following Intel's uh, roadmap to drive the scale of that platform. But I remember visiting a customer at the time, and uh, it was on a Monday, and uh, the, the CIO said, gee, you know, your little box is a real hero here uh, on Friday. And I'm like, what happened? And uh, I said, well, we had a full-on corruption on our email database. And we were going to spend all weekend here trying to restore that database from tape. And he said, then we realized that we have backed up our email database on your day of the main box. And he said, guess what? By 7 o'clock, we were going home. And I'm like, okay, I think I can sell this a few more times. <laughs> that was lightning. The
0: customer found it. You just sold them a generic storage device, and they decided to use it for their business critical well, it, email it, it backup.
1: Is, it, is a, it was a backup storage device. It was small and slow. And finding that that one use case that we could sell enough times to keep ourselves alive while we were building a bigger, faster version of the same thing, you know, that became the strategy. Bigger, faster, bigger, faster. That was the mantra. And eventually this thing got so insanely large and fast. I mean, we did everything. I mean, we, we backed up the largest files and databases in the industry. I mean, most data in the world is backed up on the data domain systems to this day. And we could land data, deduplicated faster than people could land data raw, right? Which is kind of a, again, it's counterintuitive. If you run a deduplication process that must be slower than landing data raw, but no, you know, because you know, there's less IO when you deduplicate duplicate the data, you're just relying on the, you know, on, on machine power not on this I.O. Those were incredible inventions and they, they just yielded a lot of value, a lot of value.
3: Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered, that aside, Having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space, is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business.
0: So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. You were building a rocket science roadmap, but you were selling the janky first version. You just had to land it in the use case that was clear where it was lightning. Yeah, and that's uh, there's,
1: there's a lesson there for every company because we all have to connect with use cases, right? You can't sell an abstract product. People need to know how to apply it, and, and salespeople can't sell abstract things. That's why selling platforms is so murderously difficult, and most people fail. Because a platform is a generic, abstract thing. You show it to a customer, and they go, like, what does it do? Well, do you think I should do it? And, and then you go, like, well, what, what do you want to do? Well, that's not a productive conversation. You want to go in. It's a very precise solution to a specific problem. You're just trying to find out whether they have that problem or whether they care so about it. So
0: was that problem at ServiceNow? I mean, you joined this company. You're a, legend, a legendary company. They asked you to come in. They're a decent size, but I think by today's standards, $75 million is an early company still. What was
1: that sale? Actually, it was very similar. It, it was lightning in the bottle uh, because we were competing against uh, the likes of BMC and HP, who literally had products that sort of, you know, dated back to the Windows 95 era, mid 90s, or, or even further. In the case of HP, these were character mode products from the 80s. What ServiceNow did was it had created a platform that allowed non technical people, non-programming type staff to literally change everything about a ticketing or an ITSM type of application. And when I say everything, you know, if you had a form, you know, where where you entered your, uh, your support tickets, you could change the fields, you could change the, the structure, you could change the logos on there. And it could all be done by non-technical people. And, you know, people came from a world where everything was incredibly difficult to build, it was completely static. And they were so incredibly frustrated that they they just couldn't evolve these systems on their own. They needed very technical people that were Well, I had to do this for
0: years. I mean, at at, uh, some of my mobile phone ventures, we were running call centers, thousands of agents answering millions of phone calls. And they're looking at, as you say, Windows computers with, uh, I guess, visual basic UIs that would take months to refine if a field wasn't right or if we needed to add another flag or, or something like that. This is what you were
1: exactly you were yeah. you were crushing that. We always have these seminal moments, right? And then we it's completely repeatable, which is what we did, of course. We have a very, very precise sales process, with all these steps in it, we get the right people in the room. We ask them exactly what their environment is like. We show it to them on our system, put their logos on there, and then we start entering a ticket and then the customer goes like yeah I've seen this before. Now Says, can you move that logo over here? And then can you move this field over there? Can you delete that field? Can you change the assignment group for this thing? And you know the, the sales engineer would do it right in front of their noses, and they would just drop out of their chairs. And I will say every successful product has a seminal moment in the sales process where you go from pushing uphill to running downhill. And understanding what that seminal moment is and that you have to have that is what creates highly scalable sales processes. Because if everything is pushing the rock uphill, you won't scale out. It's just too hard.
0: I mean it sounds so, like an amazing first meeting, but I you know, listening to you and and if I were the one running that company, I'd have been nervous that I it's a pretty high stakes sale. You're ripping out someone else's system. It's gonna take months and years and then a zillion different decision makers and the lightning seems neat, but aren't they going to wait until you're more mature and is it a high stake sale? Is it a year
1: long deployment? Uh, no, I mean, usually, you know, 90 days, 180 days, very complex. I mean, what amazed me at service now, I remember, this is, you know, people at, at Deutsche Bank and UBS, usually financial institutions are very slow adopters, of most things, and they were literally asking us to come in there, and they, they said... You have to come in here. And, you know, we're like, we have to. Well, well, we're happy to come, of course, because you're asking. But they said, we have to have this and we must succeed with it. And we're like, well, we don't think we're ready for an institution of your size and 80,000 tickets a month and blah, 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 blah. And they were like, we will help you succeed. We will make you better. I mean, they were desperate for this product, absolutely desperate for it. We have such high reservations ourselves, but they were like selling us instead of us selling them. Right, because they had to have it. They just had to. And uh, I was like, So part wow, of it was you know, how it
0: amazing was. the product was. And I guess part of it was how much distance there was to the old way. It was just a burning fire. Yeah, yeah, that had yeah.
1: To be. Our founder said that, you know, he spent, built half the product uh, on a plane between London and San Diego, going back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> and that's
2: incredible. Frank, I got one for you uh, in Missoula, is... Once you figured out it was about getting the jaw to drop in the room, and that was the part of the demo that really, you know, made people like fall back in their chair. Was it also figuring out who the person who was most likely to fall back in their chair, who that person was, and was there anyone counter Did you anyone show up in that sales process that was counterintuitive from the original sales motion that you
1: started? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're sort of touching on a very important aspect uh, of of any uh, selling motion, uh, and that is. Recruiting the correct sponsorship. I, I can't tell you how many times I hammer on this with my own salespeople because the the sponsors are the people that sell the last mile. You know, salespeople always think that they do the and They don't. You know, you recruit the sponsor, The sponsors make the sale on the inside. I mean, you can't do the selling on the side. You simply can't because you're not one of them. So there's so much work that has to go into mapping out or all the usual suspect, in terms of economic buyers, in terms of influencers, people that we we don't quite understand what they do, where they are, and what influence they really have. But again, the sponsors will tell you who have influence, right? They are also the people that will translate everything that's going on and help you understand what the political dynamics are in, in the account. But the sponsors have to be there every step of the way. And sometimes sponsors are non-existent. Sometimes sponsors are weak. Sometimes sponsors are just the incorrect people. So understanding that and, and campaigning around that effectively and interrogating your pipeline around sponsorship is exceedingly important. Because I will tell you, every deal that goes sideways it will end up in an analysis of the sponsorship being incorrect or off or ineffective.
0: 100%. How, do you know who the, how do you know who the sponsor is? Is it something uh, you can see in their eyes or is it something you can find they, from research? They
1: are, well, you, you can see it in their eyes too, but they are the people who the organization holds responsible for the success of this product if they are to buy it. And they they are typically not executives. They can be, but usually they are the people that the organization looks to. Like, you will make this recommendation, you will make this decision, and you will be on the hook for the success or failure of this project. And every organization has such a person. I mean, I have the experience of doing a lot of selling, but hell, you know, I get sold to a lot as well. By the way, I learn a lot from how people sell about how little they really understand about selling, right? But when somebody wants to uh, wants to sell me something, right, I don't buy it, right? And I'm like, okay, you know, what part of your organization is this? So, in other words, if I'm going to buy something as a company, it depends a whole hell of a lot who in my organization wants to buy this and whether that person has the credibility in my organization right? If they yeah. do, they they stand a really good chance of telling us internally, on doing this. If they don't, it's a non-starter from the get-go. We're just going to not do it. So the credibility is really important. I, I find it always fascinating that people want to come over the top and they want to get access to executive power. They think that CEOs drive deals and they don't. You must have the grassroots support in the organization because the first thing i'm going to do is i'm going to ask like who wants to buy this and why do you want to buy it am i getting a good story but they're going to come to me and say i want to buy this to go to our cfo we need this they're going to make the case internally I want to draw
0: you through into Snowflake and the way I want to frame it, because I want to investigate that same selling motion. But you know, times have changed. You're out there selling that backup device in 2004 or whatever, and maybe it's only a few thousand bucks, and they just sort of buy it from you. And then at ServiceNow, you're doing deals that I suspect would have been quite a bit larger in some cases, in their contracts that have some duration. And now you were just telling us about this utilization model and the whole—you know—you're not even necessarily walking into their offices. There's someone. Wearing a polo that goes and calls on the customer and, and makes that deal happen?
1: Well, in case of Snowflake, it's often uh, not that hard. And the reason is people own things like SQL Server and Oracle and Teradata and Nateza. You know, we look for workloads that it's not hard to find those workloads in an enterprise that we think will benefit from cloud level execution the way Snowflake uh, does it. And you find the people who own these systems, it's a pretty short walk. The nice part about our selling motion is that you know we can identify existing workloads. It's very easy to ingest the same data onto Snowflake. Well, obviously, the data has to move to the clouds first. That's the hardest part. But once it's in the clouds, we ingest it into Snowflake. We run the exact same queries, and then they put them side by side, and they blow their minds because we will run things two or three orders of or magnitude faster. And they go like, "Holy shit! How do you do that?" The same, you know, lightning in the bottle is what happens. Ingest speeds, you know, go from hours and days to seconds and minutes. They're like, how the hell do you do that? Well, that's what cloud computing does if you address it properly. So, and this is what we love about this business, right? You get products that just completely blow people's minds. Sometimes jobs run so fast, people think that it doesn't work. They call us, it doesn't work. It has already done it, right? (laughs)
0: Uh, (laughs)
1: That that honestly happens. (laughs)
0: And then they cancel their Oracle license, shut down the on-prem environment,
1: well, and uh, yeah, move all their data but, to you. You know, obviously, we're a big modernization play because we, we take things from old to uh, to new. But then you get the, uh, the utility model. You only pay for what you use. You get the elasticity. You can bring unlimited compute and capacity to an environment, and you only pay for what you use. So this is not an incremental change. This is a complete step function. In, uh, in computing architectures. And Do you you know, think these had...
0: old school guys who are trying to migrate on-prem to cloud or whatever, you think this last year, their results have been impaired by adoption moving to you?
1: Who are you talking about now? Like the Oracles or the
0: SAPs, you know how everyone is trying to yeah. shift their business. I mean,
1: uh, from... Obviously, uh, yes. I mean, the move to the cloud is accelerating. People are staring at each other and like, what, what are we waiting for? And uh, you know, I've been having conversations for 10 years with people about cloud adoption and all the issues related to that. We're getting to the point where everybody's saying, guys, we got to go. The longer we wait, time is not our friend. New products don't run on-premise anymore. We don't run on-premise. We're cloud only. Like some of the big finance. They go like, hey, can you run the private cloud? We're like, no, and we never will,
3: okay? Not even a private
1: cloud? No, because we will deploy thousands of nodes in a freaking second. We will deploy any number of clusters with thousands of nodes, and we use them for 10 minutes. You can't do that in the private cloud. And by the way, we don't want to. It's just pointless. The whole value of the cloud is the scale of it. You're never going to have that. uh, I mean, we're processing 420 million queries a day right now. Okay, and that's growing 3x annually. I mean, we're pretty much going to be Google level. They're processing searches; we're processing queries. They're at like five or six billion. At our rate of growth, in a couple of years, you can do the math. We'll be at these numbers. Okay, that's amazing. The world is changing. There's going to be a real data cloud, and it is Snowflake, and uh, it's one giant federation uh, of data, completely unsiloed.
0: How far have we come? How much distance is left to travel? How much of compute is still stuck on prem or workload that's still left to migrate
1: out? Well, sort two things first of all, there's a lot left, okay? a lot. I mean we we have thirty forty years of database deployment that still has to move. A lot of the the selling that we have done so far are newer enterprises, all so digital enterprises. These are not the traditional, you know, AT&T, you know, uh, Disney type companies. These are new companies, you know, whether Instacart or DoorDash or Hulu or Netflix. I mean, they're all new, new companies that were were built on a digital foundation, literally from from the get-go. Uh, they're very data-centric. Uh, they're completely digital in how they do things, and they're very different from traditional global 2000 companies. The global 2000 is is just now uh, starting to move. The other thing I will tell you, and this is really important, technology is so transformative that the workloads are going to expand dramatically. I mean, what we're moving from on-prem to the cloud is nothing compared to what it eventually will be, because when you no longer have fixed capacity, there's no limit to, I mean, you can spin up a warehouse in two seconds and provision it and run it, okay? There's nothing to stop this. It will run and run and run. And data is, as I said earlier, it's how we parse the world now.
0: Well, I'm going to be looking for lightning in a bottle from now on. Frank, thank you so much for spending time and talking to us. I think people have so much to learn from your wisdom. And I know you're (laughs) running a huge business that's growing insane, rate. And so you're just taking a little bit of time is, is, is so generous.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Enjoy talking to you guys.
0: Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love of people telling us how to spread great ideas. Write a review, please. A
1: five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you.